right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And with me today is someone who I've become not just uh, colleagues with, but friends with over the past two years or so, um, Alex Kutz. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, let's let's start with IndieGov and then work our way backwards. But I, I will say that I found when, when I met Alex and we decided to invest in it and lead the Series A of his company, I was so sort of fascinated by this guy. The more we talked, the more I'm like, wow, I, I want to do stuff with him. So um, let's start at the top and then work our way down. Uh, what is IndieGov? Sure. Uh, so IndieGov is a multi-channel constituent services platform built specifically for public officials. And so basically what that means in plain language is that we make it easier for public officials to not only hear their constituents, no matter how they reach out, but respond to them, uh, resolve any requests that come in, and then proactively engage them with issues that they care about moving forward. So effectively, we're building an operating system for representative democracy. Yeah. And, and what was what is the status quo, or at least in the, the jurisdictions that haven't uh, switched to you guys yet? In the traditional world back in the day, and even today, unfortunately, back in the day also means today uh, in many governmental use cases, unfortunately. But folks are using tools built internally by IT people uh, 15, 20 years ago. They're using things like COBOL databases. They are non-web connected. They are hosted internally. They are databases with front-end interfaces. That is what they use to enter constituent information into and kind of track it. And the really sad thing is over the course of the past really 10 years, but acutely during COVID and even before that, the amount of incoming communication to public officials has 10x year over year over year. And so these old systems that have not scaled well to begin with have really broken during these times when people are reaching out to government about unemployment insurance requests or unlocking benefits of the VA or immigration assistance or any number of things. And so the old world is kind of old world defense contracting built internally, really hunky, clunky stuff. I think we've seen some cases where and I'm only exaggerating slightly. There's practically a diesel engine in the basement of a public official's office that some guy pulls a ripcord every morning and then lights start. I think they actually like ride a bicycle and that's what powers it all day. Yeah, uh, no, totally. It's been tougher to do that during COVID, but it's, it's pretty impressive cardio. And it's worth making a distinction for the listeners because, uh, you know, like most people, most of our listeners sort of feel like everyone in office is basically inept and corrupt and who cares about helping them. But yeah. it, in my experience in government, I think it's probably similar to yours. There are all the policy and political people who all are, let's just call them awful, right? But then there's these constituent services people in every representative's office and every level of government and the executive branch. And they're the ones that try to help people, right? And that's really where the need exists and kind of where I think IndieGov is really adding societal value. It's not just that you make some politician's life easier. It's that you enable them to help the people from their city or state who really need it. Bingo. I mean, we help the constituents. We sell to elected officials, but our job is to help constituents. And so today, IndiGov serves roughly 180 million Americans, which is incredible. We are helping people unlock benefits all over the country or get responses to things all over the country. So what we do as a company is in no way, shape or form, even remotely political. Uh, it is purely a public service. We just do it through public officials. So but then tell me why. So as, as you know, when we first met, I was skeptical in the sense that I just generally don't like investing in GovTech. I don't think that's you know unusual for the VC community. Why is this a good business? Yeah, so first off, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about GovTech because GovTech has changed from where people expected it to be. Uh, and I don't think a lot of the venture community has caught up with that. And so you know, five, 10 years ago, if you ever talked about GovTech, what you would really be talking about is a low gross margin, high variable cost services-based business that tries to sell software. That's what GovTech has traditionally been. With the advent of FedRAMP compliance and TextRAMP and CalRAMP and all these standards, 
they're available for the first time for security management, government is actually able to buy off-the-shelf SaaS solutions like the private market is. And so what's interesting is that governments, in the U.S. government in particular, is actually the largest vertical software market in the world. The U.S. government spends $400 billion annually on IT. They have 20 million federal or governmental employees in the U.S., and the government ingests something like 53 billion service requests a year, which shocks people. But if you look at our government, it is fundamentally a service delivery business. That's how we look at it. It is not just political stuff, as you were talking about before, writing policy, but it's helping people, it's casework, it's liaising with government agencies. And so what we found out is there is this channel for public officials across the U.S. to which we can sell in this high gross margin, low variable cost, traditional SaaS product with uh, sales cycle times that are very similar to the private market. And so I think the venture community is going to wake up to this. There are several or there are about you know, 10 to $15 billion companies in the GovTech space that have been built over the past five to 10 years. And people are just beginning to find out about them. Palantir was a great uh, signal for us. Yeah. And I think the market has so far recognized that. You want to talk about your Series B? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, it's been a really exciting growth path in IndyGov generally. It's, it's very rare for GovTech companies to do what we've done. And so it's an incredible testament to the work of the team uh, in getting here. But we just early this year closed a Series B investment for $25 million, which we're going to use to dramatically increase our footprint across the U.S., build some really cool new innovative features that are going to bridge the gap between the private market and government in a way that no one's ever seen before. Uh, we've already done that, and we're going to take that to the next level. Uh, you're going to see Indigov a whole lot more. Um, hopefully some of your listeners at some point will be users of Indigov, um, but uh, we're going to be in, in every home. That's the goal. Got it. So now that we've established kind of the baseline of what is Indigov, why are you doing it, why does it work, let's take a, a step back or go up 50,000 feet. Um, this question that Hugo actually wrote, which is the, the internet should have been the greatest thing to ever happen to politics, and yet it seems like it's actually done more to destroy it than anything yeah. else. And yet you run a internet-based system that is designed to try to improve political and government services. How do you mm -hmm. reconcile this? Yeah, man, that's a really good that's a really good question. Uh, Hugo gets props for that one. Well, you know, it, it's it's fascinating because what has happened as technology has increased dramatically and fragmented the array of channels through which people can reach out to their government, it has not given government the tools to be able to manage that. And so 10, 15 years ago, most elected representatives in the country didn't have a website. Most members of Congress were just beginning to get websites and then just eventually after that beginning to get Facebook pages. Now it's coming at them from all directions. And so it's really unfortunate. Um, and so basically what's happened is you have an enormous number of channels that aren't monitored, where people are expecting response and don't get them. I think the other part that's really fascinating is there's an entire economy of companies that I think are anti-democratic. I won't name any names, but they've basically built an economic system around wallpapering congressional and public official offices with advocacy emails, thousands of identical emails every single day. So in congressional offices, you have the federal level, roughly 85% of the incoming mail, and that's a low estimate, to congressional offices is actually automatically generated by campaign organizations. And so if I'm a, if I'm a constituent, that really pisses me off because that means that 85% of the volume that this office has to manage isn't actually messages from me and people in my community. It's messages from these advocacy orders. Yeah, so, and just, just to put in for a second there, just based on my own experience, if you're an advocacy organization and you're just sending mass emails to every member of Congress and it doesn't... It, they may or may not be from their district and they're not in any way individualized, it has very little benefit. Yeah, I mean, it's a brute force approach, right? Like the entire magic sentence they're trying to accomplish with this is that, hey, at the end of the week, the member of Congress goes to the staff and says, hey, 
what are people reaching out about? And they go, well, we got 10,000 messages about, you know, gun control of this particular kind, or like adding a thousand percent tax to AR-15s or something like that. And they're hoping that the office doesn't see through that. But the truth is the staffers hate those emails and they weight them differently. They try and ignore them because, you know, it's a mess, but they all get thrown into the same channel with everything else. And so, you know, it's a testament to the limitless capacity of our society to optimize channels that are available for purposes that could be commercial. Uh, but I think we have to watch that. Is there a world where IndyGov, in addition to sort of being the constituent management, uh, you know, operating system, it's almost kind of like the positive Twitter in the sense of on the social media platforms we have right now, it's all bad, right? All everyone does is fight with each other and complain and attack. And it just makes everyone feel terrible about everything. And yet on IndyGov, like things are good, things are happening. You actually see government doing things to help people. So we know you have the software to allow government to be a lot better at it. Do you see a world where it actually is a way to highlight what is getting done? Oh, yeah. You know, this, this is, it's actually like a secret company mission that I don't talk about. Uh, I didn't talk about with you or, or any of other investors is that I think one of the reasons that Twitter and social media have become so dominant is that the only place that I can get any information, either editorial or primary, is from social media channels because the people who have the real information who are mandated to serve us and deal with these issues do not have a channel to break through the noise. How many people are following their state senator or state congressman on Twitter? Nobody is. And so instead of hearing anything from the actual source, the person who's writing legislation or servicing your district, you hear it from you know, the person you went to high school who now is an expert on foreign war correspondence or something like that on Twitter. And so if Indigo is successful, we will give elected representatives a channel to communicate more deeply, uh, more considerably, and more directly with constituents so that they don't have to hear it from everywhere else. And so if we can even slightly change the proportion of where I'm getting com uh, content from about things that are happening in government, we will have succeeded in a, in a really interesting way. Yeah. And I think that all those tools become more and more valuable to elected officials, which then just enables your ability to sort of sell the system and sell it for more money uh, yeah. every time that you do it. So we were in investment committee yesterday and you came up and I made the statement, uh, I'm not worried because IndyGov is recession proof. Uh, yeah. Was I right or no? I think you are. Uh, and we've proven that we have been during COVID. So we, we 11 x the business during COVID, uh, which is kind of incredible when a lot of other companies were, were contracting. So Basically, and I, I've been watching, uh, I didn't get these from you, so thank you for, for not giving me anxiety vitamins, but I've been watching nothing but macroeconomic data presentations from large venture funds, Sequoia, Crass, all the others, as to what's going on in the market. And basically, one of the threads of consistent advice you're hearing from everybody is that if you're selling to other companies, bat down the hatches. Uh, I've even heard venture funds, as we did at the beginning of COVID, giving tip sheets to uh, portfolio companies to basically get out of SaaS contracts they have with like vendors that they're working with, which is horrifying. We are selling to the only market that is insulated from geopolitical and economic instability that I can imagine. We are selling to government. Government is pre-budgeted. And during COVID, governments, state governments, municipal governments uh, across the entire country were getting flush with cash because they were getting you know, aid and award benefits from the federal government. And so not only are we going to sell because our value proposition will be even stronger now that more people are reaching out to government because more people need government in trying times, our customers are going to be budgeted very healthily, and we are going to grow like crazy. So this is maybe a too complicated question, so let's see if I can even articulate it properly. But it seems to me that you've got um, a potentially incredible solution in GovTech, not, not just for what you guys are doing, but generally speaking to improve the way the government operates, the way it serves people, everything else. 
And yet on the investment side, you have a lot of VCs who are sort of very skeptical of the sector because they don't like relying on public procurement as a revenue stream. And then you have people in government who are just in some ways so unsophisticated when it comes to technology that they can't distinguish between what's good and what's bad. So as a result, they can't really take advantage of it. Um, so you've got a problem on both sides of the, of the equation. You guys have managed to kind of rise above that, but I think you're, you're an exception here. You know, how does it become less of a problem for the sector overall? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, let's take the VC side first. I mean, the VC side, it's a brute force approach. Like, I will come in with such undeniable confidence and conviction or emission and raw economic data that it's really hard to argue with. We always use primary data where we can. And the best proof you can ever have as a company is your track record. And so we show people what we've done from a revenue expansion perspective and gross margin profile and all those other things. And, you know, people get there. When they look at the data, it's really hard to say, I can't get there. Um, even if they have a lot of uh, misconceptions, which we've, we've kind of proven can work. On the other side, you know, I, I will say, you know, just like anything with private market, there are people who are really good at their job and people who are not really good at their job. That's just human Pareto principle generally across the board. But I will say, I think we've done ourselves a disservice in this country because we, we get so much of our conception from government from shows like House of Cards and Beef and you know, internet commentary and things like that, just also the ire of social media, that we fetishize government in this really dangerous way. The vast majority of the people that we work with are incredibly intelligent, very mission aligned, very hardworking, much more so in many cases than the private market, because in the private market, there's so much jumping from job to job. You know, there's benefits and negatives to being in a job for a longer period of time. There's a point at which that breaks, but I think government has benefited from that in a lot of ways. But what you're seeing now in government is there's an entirely new class of people who are coming into leadership positions who not only have private market experience, but they have an expectation for like middle, at least like middleware stats because they've used them in their private lives. And so they come in with different expectations. 20 years ago, it's, hey, let's take two years to write like a 900-page RFP document or RFI and RFQ and RFP. And by the time you actually get the solution, it's like eight years after you actually decided that you need it. And so it's a recipe for obsolescence. Today, with FedRev, they can buy off the shelf. They are more educated as to what the market looks like, and they can buy a lot faster and better. And so, again, we, we've proven that. We've shown that to investors as well, which is one of the reasons they get excited about us. But our customers have been great uh, in that respect. We've been very lucky. So given that you've had success selling into kind of municipal and county government, state government, and federal, um, give me your kind of thoughts on e each level and how much, based on what you've seen, kind of either conflicted with your initial, initial stereotypes and views or, or reaffirmed them? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So, you know, I'll be honest. When I, We'll start with Congress first because I think that's the most, most uh, visible one. You know, when I started advising members of Congress, I expected a couple of things. Uh, number one, I expected Democrats to jump on technology, new technology a lot faster than Republicans. It was exactly the opposite. Total misconception, which was bizarre. Uh, Republicans, I think, have classically known that they have issues with technology, and so they jump on it a lot faster, uh, which I think has surprised all of us at the company. Now, although we, we have an even mix of customers at the company. We're not, we're not heavy one way or the other. Um, that's one thing that was a misconception. I think at the federal level as well, um, most of the members of Congress that you see, that, that we have, are not necessarily the ones you see on the news. They are of their community. They are soccer coach. They ran at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, you know, they were a community leader. And they took the job because they truly wanted to help their community. Uh, not everyone has aspiration to higher offices that you kind of see, again, on TV or fetishized in, 
you know, Netflix shows or things like that. These people are really truly mission oriented and their staff are also for the district too. And so they know the people that they are serving. That gets even more intense as you go down to the state and local level. At state legislatures, we work with caseworkers who are like, you know, it's, it's, they, I, we have one in particular I'm thinking whose name is Grammy. Everybody calls her Grammy. She was a Sunday school teacher and soccer coach and basketball coach. And literally everyone that reaches out, she's like, oh, I know your mother. Or I know your grandmother. I play canasta with her or something like that. It's just a bizarre thing, but they are of the community, which I think is beautiful. At the local level, it's even more intense uh, because like I am representing people who I live on the same block as them. Um, it's not a lot of these people who go to different districts and run for political office at the local level. Uh, it's truly a community. And so for us, that's really interesting because when people deliver service, they do it with such a personal level. It's, it's almost like, and this is a weird metaphor to use, but it's almost like a super high luxury premium good where you're getting this like direct personalized service. You know the person that you're talking to. And so I think most Americans don't realize there are 570,000 elected officials in the U.S., only 535 at the federal level, 18,000 or so are at the state level. The remaining 540, 50,000 are all at the local level. That's the vast majority of our government. So knowing all of this, if, if I said to you, Alex, you got to run for office, but you can decide local, state, uh, federal, what would you pick? Oh, man. Um, you know, I would distinguish not the, the level necessarily, but there's representative positions and there's executive positions. Mm -hmm. um, as a company executive, I gravitate towards executive roles because it's what I know. Like, uh, you know, if you look at like a governor or mayor's office, they have large budgets and huge city management stuff. And I know you've done that too. At the representative level, like in Congress, you have you know a budget that's very that's relatively small. You have a small staff. You don't have the operational impact that you would as an executive. Not that it's any less important. Uh, the representative form is is amazing. I just think my skill set would be better towards an executive level. Uh, yeah, I just well, find it's, it super interesting. Totally. Look, I I tell people this all the time. So you know. I seem to be like a, a regular stop for anyone who's sort of, you know, successful in the private sector and wants to run for office to, to come forth for advice. And yeah. you know, usually they want to run for something and it's usually city council, Congress, state legislature, actually rarely state legislature. It seems to be city council or Congress usually. And, you know, after telling them that they shouldn't do it and they're not going to win, uh, then I say to them, look, the reality is even if you won, if you were the deputy commissioner at the Department of Buildings or the Parks Department or whatever it is, you would have vastly more impact than if you were a member of the city council or you were a member of Congress or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, I think that disparity uh, people don't really realize. So when, when you say, okay, you go to the executive branch, how, would you ever actually go and maybe not run for office but, but serve in government because uh, of what you've seen and how you think you can fix it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I, I view, my father was a civil servant. He spent his entire career working with the Department of Energy, uh, managing the Office of Civilian Radioactive Waste Management, the Yucca Mountain Project. Uh, he was very into management of spent nuclear fuel. And I grew up in a house where my dad took the oath of you know, his position extremely seriously. Uh, my entire family outside of that is military. Um, I'm named after a colonel in the Air Force. My uncle's a colonel, grandfather's colonel, everybody's you know, kind of career military. Uh, and so, I believe in public service. I, I would like to do that. I, at this point in my life, I think Indigo is the highest public service I can possibly do. Yep. That is how I look at the company. That is what motivated me to do it. I am extremely concerned about the state of democracy globally. I've seen autocratic forms of government investing very heavily in technology to control, suppress, and oppress people. And they're getting extremely good at it. You look at social credit scores in China, the Great Firewall, what's happening in Russia right now, and Ukraine in terms of management of the internet. 
if democracy does not make commensurate investments in technology to understand and communicate with and represent, we will have dystopian outcomes. And so for me, this is like attacking at the heart of one of the weaknesses of democracy, which is adoption of technology to do what it does best. And so I think that's the best I can do at the moment. But in the future, um, you know, I'd love to be helpful either to people running office, uh, running for office, or at least provide data uh, in ways so that they can understand things better. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, if you think I've been kind of spending a lot of time lately kind of learning about effects of altruism, and I think the main point would be, okay, Alex, if you think you're delivering material good to the public because you're making it a lot easier for representatives to serve their constituents, even though you're the CEO of a for-profit tech company and you hope to be a billionaire from it, um, that is still the highest and best use uh, of your time and what you can contribute, um, which I think is sort of a, a nice way to look at things. Um, the DC startup scene, you know, I think it never seems to get off the ground from what I can tell. Occasionally there's sort of some signs of life, but then it never really goes anywhere. Obviously you guys are in DC, you guys have been really successful. Uh, what do you make of the scene overall? And like, what other companies there should people know about? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I, I come from San Francisco, all the companies that I've started and run and have been executive at Rome Bay Area. So that was my operating context. Um, you know, when I, moved to, when I moved to DC, I was like, okay, we're not gonna do the company in San Francisco because the, the prices are too high. Too many people leave companies too frequently. It's just not, it's not a good idea for a startup. So we wanted to try DC as a market. We found DC to be really good at some things, really terrible at other things. Uh, really good at any services-based role. Uh, and so you look at like marketing, PR, that kind of thing. I think DC is very strong. Uh, it's really tough on the engineering side. Uh, we tried to hire a bunch of engineers in DC and quite frankly, invested a lot of money to do that. Uh, and they didn't work out. They just couldn't kind of match up to what we kind of saw as an average uh, at the Bay Area. Now, again, there are people in DC that are fantastic, but the average is significantly different. In the Bay Area, and it took me a long time to realize this building a, new, a number of companies, um, there is a very strong mentorship culture. And so you can be like a you know, 21-year-old kid that comes out of a hack reactor that did a little bit of HTML5, and you know, a year and a half, two years later, working with an excellent engineering team through their mentorship culture, be a dangerous you know, developer that's worth a couple hundred grand a year, uh, easy. In DC, you don't really have that mentorship culture. So I don't think that the ecosystem rises at the same rate as that place. Um, other than that, there's not really a lot of venture activity in the DC area. And when there is venture activity, DC or East Coast DCs tend to be much more valuation and term sensitive. So you get a lot of weird term sheets kind of thrown into things like, you know, odd liquidation preferences or information rights or this or that. And you're in the Bay Area, they tend to be a lot more founder friendly because there's so much more deal flow. They can't afford to, you know, really put the screws to founders on individual terms. So, you know, I think DC is getting better. Um, it's just, it's just like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, uh, very slow. Um, so look, the, the typical founder, or at least a typical founder in my experience, you know, is, is innovating because they think they have a better way to do something and they want to make a lot of money. But oftentimes it's like, you know, coming up with a better way to de deliver smoothies in six minutes or less or something stupid like that. Um, yeah. What got you to the point and what did you do in your career where you said, okay, the project I want to tackle is constituent services and government among all 585,000 elected officials or whatever the number was. Um, how'd you get to this point? Yeah, man, that was a religious journey. So one of the problems, well, first off, it started off with a reaction to everything I saw happening in the Bay Area. I saw a lot of technology companies that were kind of like mid-market SaaS or B2C or C2C. 
And they were all, you know, doing somewhat interesting things in some segment, but they were all unanimously across the board going through these Olympic level contortions to rationalize the value that they created to make it sound like they were creating societal value. Like there are people who work at gaming companies and the gaming company like, we're making the world a better place because we help people have fun. That's horseshit. Uh, it doesn't happen. And so a lot of Bay Area companies do that. And so that really bothered me. And I didn't want to dedicate my career to working on something that had to be so heavily rationalized to creating value for people. And because I love people, I genuinely love people. And I think life is hard and I think they deserve a break. And so what I kind of realized through a series of extreme experiences in the Bay Area is that there were only two things that humanity had invented outside of a profit motive for the betterment of society at scale. One of them was religion. And I know you share that view as well. And we're both super interested in that topic. And the other is government. Government was designed outside of a profit motive to help people who can't help themselves, to protect access to the uh, modes and mechanisms by which people can protect themselves and you know, live good lives. I think it's a beautiful thing. And candidly at the time, I knew nothing about government, absolutely nothing. And I thought that was messed up because, you know, my family is an you know, immigrant family. We're, we're Greek and I love this country and I'm patriotic and in a real way, like I believe in American exceptionalism, not on the hokey, oversaturated, played out way on the internet, but I genuinely at a philosophical level believe it. But I didn't know who any of my representatives were. I didn't understand how my government operated and that was horrifying to me. And so I started designing I looked at that as like a, the greatest design challenge that exists. How do I get the average constituent to engage with the democratic process in some meaningful way? And that was crazy. Uh, and so basically, uh, I started designing that as a user experience. So I said, if I was the user experience designer of the government, how would I design my services and content to make people actually engage with it? Uh, and so I started doing that. I started designing civic engagement applications. So I founded a company, I went to another company, another company, another company, uh, and was in the space for a little bit and had designed experiences that had sent roughly 70 million messages to elected officials. But the problem is that people who would come on apps that I would design, read a bill, reach out to an elected representative, they'd never get a response. And so that really pissed me off. And so all good companies should start off with the founder being really pissed off. Uh, that's really what it was. I was angry. And so I started flying from San Francisco back to DC and just randomly walking into congressional offices which by the way, is still incredible to me that you can just do that because it's, it's the people's office, right? You're, you're, it's meant to be accessible. And I just started asking them questions. I'm like, what do you do here? Like, why don't you respond fast? What technology do you use? And what I saw, when I saw what they were using, it was abjectly horrifying. They were using technology built, you know, decades ago. And so I was like, wow, this is like an eminently solvable problem. Like, let's get some private market SaaS in here. Let's figure this out. But the truth is that nothing off the shelf really worked for them. They had so many specific needs that were highly targeted to that vertical that they needed a custom built solution. And so I designed it sitting in offices next to the people that did it, the job every day. We launched it and tested it in offices next to the people that were using the software every day and have kind of expanded as all good companies do in concentric circles to adjacent markets that exhibit similar behavioral patterns and needs from Congress to state to local government. And so honestly, it was a religious, it started off as a religious mission it turned into something that really pissed me off. And then it became an all-consuming passion to the point where now there's literally nothing else that I can do uh, other than this. I, I like hearing my founder say that. Uh, all right, so last, last question, which is, you know, we live in a world that is so skeptical and cynical and kind of used to government failure that I, I think we don't really expect much. But, like, just as a baseline, what should people 
expect from government? What do they have the right to? Because to me, ultimately, IndieGov is really about sort of fulfilling that, that purpose. Well, that's a great question. I mean, the, the beauty of it is that you, as a citizen, you have the right to expect whatever you want. And then theoretically, if enough people have that expectation, government needs to change to reflect those expectations. And they should change over time. From my opinion, what you should expect from your government is, first off, you have to make sure that you know them. Democracy, first off, government is the part that we do together. That's my favorite description of government. It's the part that we do together. Democracy in particular, and our form of democracy is participatory government. It requires engagement from citizens. And so in my opinion, it's, it's lazy to be angry if you have no idea who your elected representative is and what they've actually done. You have to get educated. You have to get involved. That's so that you can, not just for your own purposes or for mine or for anybody else's, but so that you can hold your government responsible for the things that they are doing. It is very, very important. And so, you know, I think you should have whatever expectation you need. But the important thing is that to understand government is a service delivery organization. The people that are elected to serve you are serving you. They're here for you. And so get educated about what they can provide, casework, liaising with government agencies, helping you with different types of things, and then reach out to them when you need them. But first, make sure you know who they are. All makes sense. Alex, how do people learn more about IndieGov? How do they, if, if, if you're a uh, working government here and you want to bring IndieGov in for a demo, how do they do that? Yeah. Uh, so go to uh, IndieGov.com, I-N-D-I-G-O-V.com. Uh, and if you're a public official, request a demo. We'd love to have a meeting with you and show you what we've done, probably in an elected office near you, maybe even people that you know, uh, as we're spreading so quickly. Uh, otherwise, uh, podcasts like this are great. Uh, we're putting out a lot of great content these days as we're trying to educate the public more about what we see in public offices because we feel that that is a public good to provide that information as much as it is to provide the software that we do. And so check out our website, follow us on social media, uh, and don't be a stranger. Perfect. All right, Alex Kutz, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley.